people were driving from San Jose to watch a fight. And sometimes the fight lasted only a minute. They would drive that far just for that. And then afterwards, they'd be so happy. I'm like, you guys drove five hours, six hours for a minute, and they didn't care. Hi, friends, and welcome to the Assyrian Podcast. This is episode number 21 on the only podcast that takes you deep into the Assyrian story and brings you back better. My name is Steve, and in this episode, I'm so thrilled to present my interview with the Assyrian lion, Beniel Dariush. Many of you know Beniel from watching him in the octagon, taking on opponent after opponent, and waving the Assyrian flag proudly. In this interview, we'll get to know Beniel in the Assyrian podcast style as we'll get a glimpse into his experience in the UFC and also what it's like to own his own business and so many other unique things about Beniel. Thank you for all your support. Podcast continues to grow and we continue to get to do these amazing interviews with people like Beniel. Whether you've been listening to the Assyrian podcast for a while or if you're a new listener, Reach out to us and let us know by emailing us at assyrianpodcast at gmail.com. Remember to also follow us on social media and most importantly, subscribe and review the podcast. You can also help us by spreading the word and telling your friends to visit us on our website, www.assyrianpodcast.com, where they can find links to subscribe using an iPhone or an Android. Show us your love and spread the word about the Assyrian Podcast. Share it with one of your close friends, subscribe one of your family members, and let the world know. We are also excited to announce that you can now find all of our episodes streaming on Spotify. I can't tell you how much we've enjoyed getting to know various Assyrians and bringing you their stories. And we want to thank you for being a part of our worldwide community of Assyrian podcast listeners. Finally, a special thank you and shout out to our sponsor, John Oshana from HomeSmart. Whether you're thinking about purchasing or selling your home either in Arizona or California, contact John O'Shauna Real Estate Professional at 209-968-9519, on Facebook at John O'Shauna Realtor, or at John.O'Shauna on Instagram. And now, here's my interview with the Assyrian lion, Beniel Dariush. I know you moved to the United States from Iran at 10 years old. Is that accurate? 10 or 9, I don't even remember. Oh, okay. <laughs> and where were your family from over there? Urmi. Um, Urmi is, I don't even know what region it's considered, but uh, I think it's considered part of Tabriz, which is uh, Taurus. And we came here when I was 9, which is... 99 or 98? I, I don't remember. I, but I do remember celebrating the year 2000 in America. So, oh, okay. So either 99 or 98. I remember celebrating it because I was scared because all the fireworks and my dad was with me, so it was cool. Must have been like a small child then. I wasn't even in middle school yet. And, of course, both your parents are Assyrian and they raised you in a traditional Assyrian home. But for you, I think it was even a little more. If I remember correctly, you did like the Nazarite vow where you didn't cut your hair. <laughs> oh, yeah. When I was a kid, I guess I let my finger get stuck in or my thumb get stuck somewhere. They took me to the hospital and I guess my finger was going to have to get cut off or something like that. So my dad's like, no way. 
he goes and he makes a sacrifice, Gurbana and whatever, and he says they're gonna make me a Nazarite vow. They're gonna do the Nazarite. So, and ended up healing. My my thumb healed. I uh, I guess one of the things that went wrong was with the doctor didn't seal it or uh, correctly tie it. He was a young doctor, and because of that, my thumb almost got cut off. But it didn't. Thank God. Yeah. And, uh, I'm here with with two thumbs. <laughs> So I don't know of very many Assyrians who have ever had that. If you're in Udemy, you'll meet a lot. There's, okay. There's a surprising amount there. My two cousins of mine are also the same. One, uh, I think his was only to three or four, and then the, uh, my other cousin to seven also. So it's more common there than you would think. Wow. Yeah, I did not know about that. So what was it like to come to the United States at 10 years old? It was a culture shock as far as... United States goes, but it was tough because I can't say I built it, but I had lots of friends, lots of cousins, lots of family where I was, and, and I didn't understand why I had to leave all that good stuff. I lived on a farm. I, I love my family. I love my farm. I love the people around me. I mean, I was in a great place, a place you would want to live when you're young, middle-aged, old, doesn't matter at what, at what part of your life. Uh, at least even looking back at it at this age, I, I think that. So with that being said, coming here was hard from that perspective. And then there was the culture shock of, well, what are they wearing? When am I going to learn English? But, you know, what really helped was video games. Yeah. They, they, they take your mind off things. It's, it's, it's uh, once you dive into them, you forget about everything else, which is terrible to say. But it, it kind of worked out because it helped me ease into the culture. Yeah. I think the best thing about the 1980s was Nintendo Entertainment System. Yeah. It's revolutionary. Nintendo did good. Yeah. They really did. My, my dad had Mario in Iran, mm -hmm. and I think I was like four or, or five, and he would be able to beat the whole thing. <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah, it was really impressive. And we, my sister and I, we I, maybe she did, but I never beat it. So, like, my dad was the guy. Yeah. Yeah, so that I, 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 once I came to America... The 64 was, was the popular thing, and then PlayStation, and then it just kept building up from there. There was Dreamcast. My dad got me a 64, and we spent a lot of time playing Super Smash Brothers, and stuff oh. like that really helped out, you know, because Super Smash Brothers, you play with your, your cousins and your friends. I couldn't speak English in the beginning, but at least they're there, and we're playing together, and we, we kind of know what's going on, camaraderie. Yeah, hey, that's an awesome place to build friendships and community and teamwork, too. Um, and also wanted to ask, so you all moved to the greater Los Angeles area? We were in Orange County. We moved, uh, I think it was Tustin for the first year, and then I moved to Urbalinda, and I'm still there. For people who are not familiar with Southern California, Tustin, and then you said Urbalinda. So whereabouts? So Los Angeles is north of Orange County. So south of Los Angeles is Orange County, and uh, Urbalinda is on the east side. When you want to go to your Belinda, you head towards like Vegas or something. Oh, okay. Ninety one, and you go towards Vegas, and it's it's there right before you get to the Corona and Riverside. And was there a lot of Assyrians in that area? Honestly, no, but our family was there. So like before we came to America, I had half of my family that I never really well. I met them a little bit. They came to visit when I was young. They were here already. They were in America and. I knew them very little, so I was kind of excited to go and, and, and meet the new family and uh, and see what they're up to, but at the same time, I had my other half in Iran, so 
But now that other half is here, I think I have only one uncle there and one aunt on my dad's side. So they're they're mostly here. Well, that's that's awesome that your family was there and that helped probably to break you in. And then you did you ever go back and visit Iran after moving here or were you just you've been here the whole time? No, I would go back constantly actually. We would go back for summer. I think I went 14, 15, 16, 17. Went back four really? times. Really? So in the, your kind of teenage years? Yeah, and I loved it. My good friends, the, the, the ones I grew up with, they're cousins, but they're friends and they're like brothers. And, and uh, we, we just hang out all the time. But once I turned 18, the whole military service and just having to spend time there, that, that got tricky. So I just didn't risk it. And then once I got older, I... I decided to visit Israel and now I heard if you go from Israel to Iran it, it can get messy and I'm just trying to figure it out <laughs> yeah so what how did the kids treat you in Iran from that American culture they they loved it like you go there and they're like oh my gosh tell us about America hang out with us and yeah I, I mean going back home one I already know them and I'm you know it's nostalgia and, and your old friends so that that would kick in but then they want to know about america it's like you're coming home with new toys with uh with new gifts for everybody and, and and they're all excited to see you now was one of those gifts since it was popular when you were growing up sagging your pants it was <laughs> oh my gosh so i i was sagging my pants when i came to iran i think my first year and everybody's just like, what are you doing? You look ridiculous. Aren't you embarrassed? Blah, 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 blah. In Iran, you can't even wear tank tops outside. You can't wear shorts for men. And I'm like sagging, my underwear showing, and I, I think I'm so cool. But next year I come back, I'm like, man, I can't believe I did that. I'm, I'm like 16 or something. I can't believe I was sagging. That's so dumb, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, the year after that, I come back and everybody's sagging. No. And I'm like, oh gosh, this is not good. But I, I, I think culture just changes and, and, you know, copies. and. So friends on the Assyrian podcast, you heard it here first. Benil Darius used to sag his pants. So embarrassing. So, <laughs> yeah. so with that being said, Benil, like you're growing up in the United States. You're, did you play any sports while you were in high school? High school, I played a little bit of soccer. I was not that good. I think I spent a little bit of time on varsity, and then I was out. I, I didn't even get to go that far. Played uh, I think one or two years, but because I got kicked out, my... Uh, you got kicked out? I mean, I didn't make the team, basically. Oh, okay. So I think there was a new coach, and the new coach was like, I'm going to start like a younger team, and he kicked out some of the older guys who weren't really the higher level, which, which was true. I wasn't really that good. He kicked those guys out, and... Because of that, I started. I tried wrestling for a couple of months. I, I, I mean, my, it was my last, my senior year. I was gonna do nothing. I had a friend of mine, Nick Gonzalez, and he's like, "Come on, man, let's wrestle." I was like, "No, dude, I don't want to do that." He's like, "What are you gonna do? Just go home after fifth period?" I was like, "Yeah." I was like, "Fine, I'll just go wrestling and see what it's all about." I ended up really like wrestling, and I had a lot of fun. But it was only a couple of months, and it was done. And then you were done with wrestling. Wrestling ended in in april i want to say and i was looking for something to do like looking back at your high school career were, were there any seeds that were planted that ended up leading you to what ended up happening next with mma i mean with wrestling was the only one i can think of i, I wrestled for 
I think it was February, March. And April, there was nothing to do and I was terribly bored. And I turned 18 in May, so I could sign my own waiver because my mom wouldn't do it. I found a jiu-jitsu place. I, I watched MMA and I was, I was like, oh, MMA's pretty cool. Maybe I'll go try some jiu-jitsu. There's no punching and I can start at that. So when you graduated high school, you had already signed up to do jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. And what were your plans for your life when you graduated high school? I was going to go to college, which I did. I was going to be some kind of business accountant, accounting, something. I was just, at that time, I was just looking at my cousins to see which job. I got, right. I got, I got every spectrum. I got the blue collar, I got the white collar, and all of that stuff. I could be an accountant. There was lawyers and family. There were nurses, doctors, and I was not interested in the doctor thing and, or nurse. And I figured maybe I'll just be an accountant. It kind of like not easy, but it's just you just keep doing the same work and over and over again. I, I I figured that would be the easiest as far as your mind goes, but it's not. That's not even close. Right, but at the end of the day, you you had not found your passion, and you were doing what you thought would be like the smart thing to do and find a steady job or a steady career. Yeah, I mean, our culture is really simple. We. We don't really put it into wor- words, but we have an honor and shame culture, assurance. You you do well, you honor the family, and, and in return, they're happy with you, and, and you're happy. Because if they're not happy, you, they're going to make sure you're not happy. Yeah. And with that being said, I want to ha- get a good job, and I want the family to be happy. So if they're happy, I'll be happy kind of thing. So then, though, you showed up to a dojo and started wrestling, started d- doing jujitsu. Yeah, I showed up, and... I was like, I'm in college. Why not just do something and stay active? I go to the gym. This will be my gym. It'll be better than going to the gym. You know, I'll, I'll get exercise in and I'll learn something new. And that's how it started. I ended up showing up every day because I had nothing else to do. I had recently gone through a breakup. Uh, my job was at Baskin Robbins. I didn't work that many hours. They didn't have that many hours for me to work. So it was just easy to train all the time. Were you 18 at this time? I just turned 18. Okay. May 9th. I, my birthday was May 6th. May 9th, I started doing jiu-jitsu. So you turn 18, you had your heart broken, uh-huh. and then you start doing jiu-jitsu, and then you're working for Baskin-Robbins. So just everyone take a moment and imagine this strong fighter that <laughs> we know is Ben Neil Darius at Baskin-Robbins. Yeah, so... One of the things that could have gone really wrong for me was when I when I had the breakup, you know, I could have got into partying and things like that. But luckily, my mom caught me drinking once and she's like, don't ever do that again. Promise me you're never going to do that again. And, and, I, and I, I did promise. I even promised on the cross, even though I didn't know what that even meant at the time. I, uh, I promised on the cross and... Uh, I wasn't really sure what I was doing, but I was like, man, this is serious, you know? If if I'm doing this, I gotta keep the promise. So I ended up keeping the promise. With that being said, I got through, uh, went through the breakup, and instead of going into partying, I would go to the party, but without drinking, it was the lamest. Right. Just terrible. I I, I didn't understand the whole point of it. I ended up just finding jujitsu, and it it was easier to do jujitsu than just go out. Take us into those formative years where you're in that in the dojo and you're wrestling i mean how many hours a day are you spending in there 
when I got there, they had classes, morning classes and night classes, and I was in school, so I did the night classes for, for the first month or two, but then I went to college and I get to do my own schedule, and I scheduled things around. I think my first semester, I, I couldn't even get classes because school was so bad, it was so packed. Since you don't have seniority, it's really hard to get the classes you want, so I got some, some weird classes, or I didn't get classes at all, I don't remember exactly, and I just trained. I trained a lot and I, I, I had a little bit of work and that's it. So many people hit that critical point in their life where they experience a breakup or a heartache or some sort of a loss. And you got lucky, so to speak, to find jujitsu because many people will, maybe won't find that thing. And so you then focus your energy, you're in there all the time. And then how does that end up translating into being in the UFC? Yeah, so, well, whatever I would have found, I'm sure God would have developed it. And, and to, uh, as, long as, as long as I enjoy it, I, I really believe God takes whatever we enjoy and, and He uh, develops us through it. I found jiu-jitsu and I start to compete. I uh, got called into competition for jiu-jitsu and, uh, and I said, okay, I'll do that. And I jumped in and I started competing and, and it was very natural for me to compete, which was weird because I would show up terrified nervous but once once i'm competing I, I felt it was the most normal thing i could think of i had you have you have a goal you have a plan you've got to execute it or, or you don't either that person wins or you win the, the simplicity of it was very attractive to me so work hard win more kind of thing you know and with that being said, I just started competing and, and, and the titles started piling up. I, I think I won like, I was a beginner, but at the beginner level, I won like national tournament I, and then eventually a world tournament the first year. Of jiu-jitsu? Of jiu-jitsu as a beginner, which isn't anything special, but like for a guy who's never done anything and getting that, it, it was like, oh man, maybe I got something here. And and the next level, I you go from white belt to black belt, you know, my white belt, I... I I pretty much won everything I, I got into. I, I had a couple of tournaments where I was second or third. And then blue belt, same thing. And then purple, brown, and then I'm, I'm at black belt. But two years in, I get a call to do an MMA fight because my coach was like, you know, I, I see you talk about MMA a lot. I see you watch MMA a lot. And I think he just figured I would enjoy fighting. So he called me for a fight. And I remember it pretty clearly. I, I wanted to say no, but I said yes because I didn't want my coach, who at the time I really cared about and, and thought highly of, I didn't want him thinking I'm scared. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. No big deal. And then he's like, okay, you got to go get, do your medicals and things like that. It's a professional fight. I was like, whoa, it's professional. Now, that, that part scared me even more because, you know, if you do an amateur fight, you lose. It doesn't go on your record. But a professional fight goes on your record and it's there forever. And at that time, I, I really didn't want blemishes. Perfection was the, the goal. And as an athlete, I think every athlete can agree when you do something, you do it to, to be perfect. You don't just do it to just do it to be good because we're never going to reach perfection, but that's what we aim for. We, we aim to do every, every jab, every cross, every slip perfect every every goal every basket hoop whatever you're looking for you're, you're trying to be perfect at it you're not trying to be good at it because good's not enough somebody else is going to be better so yeah and then i ended up having a professional fight at 20 years old 
And this was a professionally rated? Yeah, I mean, I, I got a sure dog record. Did your parents know about this? She found out like a week before or two weeks before. The promoter's like, you have to sell tickets. I was like, I don't want to sell tickets. He's like, well, then you don't have a fight. I was like, fine, I guess I'll sell tickets. I ended up getting like 60, 70, 80 people tickets. And the promoter's like, so when are you coming back? He was, he was very stoked on the fact that I could sell so many tickets. And he just kept calling me back for more fights and things like that. Was that the community you had built up over time? Was that your parents? I mean, also just to talk about your parents. Okay, (laughs) yeah, I got it. That's awesome. That's how big my family was. And then my jiu-jitsu people. Yeah. My jiu-jitsu family was also very big. Now, has it been with your parents where like your dad is completely supportive and then your mom is like, but I don't want him to get hurt. Exactly. Yeah. I, I don't have to explain that to our Assyrian friends, but mom was very against it. She didn't even like jujitsu where there's no no striking, it's just grappling. She was against that. And then when MMA came around, I told her, oh, I was just doing this one fight. And then somehow I got it through and, and all my friends and family showed up and I ended up winning by the narrowest, narrowest decision you could possibly win. I got a split decision. And that first fight? Yeah, it was that. I wanted to ask you, so what happened? I thought I was ready. I was training a lot of striking. I was doing a lot of grappling. I had a good warm-up. I remember I had a good warm-up. I was shaking myself. I was like, oh, man, I feel good. I'm fast. My head movement's there. I'm I'm, I'm feeling like like Anderson Silva. I'm going to be the next Anderson Silva. Anderson was big back then. He was uh, knocking people out and just doing things nobody else was doing. So... When I'm walking out, I'm feeling great, and then my family, my friends, and everybody from jiu-jitsu, and everybody that I, some some of them I didn't even know, they just showed up because they, they knew me from jiu-jitsu. I, I, at that time, two years in, I built a decent jiu-jitsu record. They just start screaming, and my heart sank. My, my heart dropped, and then from that moment till after the fight, I don't remember anything. It's just, it was like a blink. Yeah. I, 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 I finally found the video of that fight, and I... I can't watch it without either laughing or getting really mad at myself i laugh because how bad it was and then i get mad at myself because of how bad it was i was like i can't believe you did that so yeah that was my first fight i came out of the fight with a narrow victory i I went in the back and i started like i'm never gonna fight again i was yelling at my coaches not yelling at them but you know i was complaining to them my sister was back there and and i ended up puking because i don't you know nerves i was so nervous most people puke before i after of course yeah, I think it helped being young 20 years old my body held together better <laughs> and yeah I said I was never gonna do it again but when you want to be good at something and MMA was something I want to be good at it just kind of almost haunted me I guess you could say it wasn't just an itch because you know they say an itch an itch you scratch it once and it's, it goes away maybe but this was like like in my ear all the time like the heck that was crap and you talk like you know i would watch other fighters fight and i'd be criticizing and saying this and that and this was all i was criticizing myself all the time for how bad i fought and i just wanted to do it again to make it better you went from all right i just got to go to college and get a degree that's gonna pay the bills and you know do right by family but then you found what you were passionate about in jiu-jitsu and continued to be passionate about but sounds like when you saw, when you got done with that first fight, you realized, wait, maybe I can do this professionally. Yeah, that that's definitely one hundred percent true. I 
was doing really well in jiu-jitsu. I mean, I, I was winning world titles at, at that time. I was, it's been two years in. I won the worlds at a white belt and then at blue belt, which was much more difficult. And then there was a gi portion to the, uh, to the worlds and a no gi. What's gi? So gi is that uh, kimono, that uniform you put on. Oh, so okay. that was really popular, but then they had recently made a no gi where it's just regular grappling, almost like wrestling. And the gi was in June, let's say, or May, and then no gi was in July or October. I, I went from winning the Worlds, or I placed at, at Blue Belt, and and I came into to the Purple Belt as kind of an unknown. I was known a little bit, but kind of an unknown at the Purple Belt level, and I ended up winning that, and I won the Open Weight, which was all weight classes. So as soon as that happened, everybody's like, oh, Who's this kid? You know, I, I was really confident. At that point, I was like, yeah, I can do, I can do MMA fights. I can do everything. If if anything, it kind of brought me back down a little bit. My ambition went, it was put in check. This was more like a curse almost. That I think that's the better way. Like, I was so bad. I can't believe how bad I was. I can't live with myself like that. Oh, I see. It, it was more like that. So you, you had a critical voice that was pushing you to get better and better. I think that's what it was more than anything. Because I was still super ambitious in jiu-jitsu. I think I competed again in a month after my fight in jiu-jitsu, and I, and I was winning tournaments again. But I, I was back into jiu-jitsu and doing lots of tournaments. But the, the fight just played over and over in my head, and, and because of that... I decided to go look for an actual MMA gym for my next fight, which was not for another year after that. So that thing haunted me for, for. But it was a split months. decision, so you didn't lose. No, I won, but a split decision means one judge saw it for the other guy. So it was it was a really close fight. I I didn't want close fights. I wanted dominant victories. I'm hearing now what you're saying. You ba- after that first fight, you said, "All right, if I'm gonna do this, nothing's gonna get in my way. I'm gonna do it the right way. I'm gonna win." And I'm going to do my absolute best. So it wasn't until a full year had passed before your next fight. Yeah, for MMA, I was still, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go back to jujitsu. I'm not even going to worry about this. I got, I got, you know, I got bigger fish to fry, I guess. Uh, At that time, I was more focused on jujitsu. And I I went back to jujitsu. Everything was going really well at Purple Belt. And sure enough. The promoter called again? Yeah. I mean, he was calling all the time, but I just decided, you know what? A year passes, the Gi Worlds is over at Purple Belt. I did really well at the Gi Worlds and the Pans. Those are the two big tournaments. And I'm kind of free for a couple of months. I was like, you know what? Let's just go and fight. And had you stopped going to school at that point because you... No, no, you were still... I was still in school. I I was between part-time and full-time. Yeah. Sometimes I would be full-time and then I would drop a class. And were you still doing the Baskin-Robbins thing? I stopped doing Baskin Robbins when I got my purple belt. So right before the fight, I, I won two world championships and a pan championship as a Baskin Robbins employee. Wow! <laughs> yeah. Does Baskin Robbins know that? Uh, I don't know if they do, but but uh, actually one of the reasons why I was so good was I wasn't developing any muscle. I was just eating ice cream, and I couldn't develop any muscle. And and, and jiu jitsu being flexible could be a really good weapon. And because I wasn't very muscular, I was extremely flexible. And I had bad posture <laughs> and bags under my eyes, but it just, for some reason, it was working. I, I could do things that other people couldn't do, and I could invert and, and, and move around. 
and I didn't have to worry about it. As soon as I quit Baskin Robbins, I gained a good like 14, 15 pounds. I had to move up a weight class and totally changed everything. I had to change uh, the way I fought jujitsu as well. So with Baskin Robbins, I, I did have an advantage, I guess, as far as keeping my weight lighter. I couldn't develop muscle eating ice cream, eating mm -hmm. sugar, eating that bad stuff. But when I quit, I, I started eating what I thought was real food, real food quotation marks. I was eating like Del Taco and Pepe's. Pepe's, it was, I said <laughs> Pepe's, that one's legit. But I didn't know what, food, what good food was until I got into like 22, 23, 24. Yeah. So then the second fight happened and the third fight happened and the fourth fight happened. And every fight was just success after success after success. How many fights did you win before you experienced your first tie or loss? Seven. So you went seven in a row. And thinking back to that success as it kept building, what was happening in you as this success kept growing and growing? It, I was... I was pretty much stuck as far as developing as a man, as far as spiritually goes, as far as, I, I thought I figured it all out. There's no need for more growth. I'm, I'm, things are going the way I want, I'm winning. But in truth, I was really just kind of getting getting away from my family. I, I, I lost a lot of friends because I, I'd be like, I, don't, I can't hang out, I gotta train, I got this, I got that. And I, I didn't make the time, I didn't create the time, I didn't make make the space for my friends to come around to, to hang out or family. So I, I, I did push away everybody. I, uh, I kept everybody away from me because I thought that's how you win. You know, they say from seclusion comes genius, but in the streams of life you get character. So I, I was secluding myself because I thought it was going to make me the best. It was working to a degree, but it, it was destroying my character. I was becoming more arrogant. I was becoming more self-centered, 100% more self-centered, and I had only one, one thought process, and that was winning. And what was happening with, like, what was your family saying? Family was okay, but at the same time not okay, because they were on my back. They were just like, you know, this is dumb. Focus on your school. This isn't going to get you anywhere, uh, which was tough to deal with. It kind of made me resentful. I was like, you know. They're not supporting you. There's some, I mean, some family was. The younger generation was definitely supportive, of course. But if you think about it, I'm a guy right now competing and, and winning, and I'm winning these tournaments, and people are just like, they're talking me up. I got I got fanboys and things like that. And then my family doesn't know anything about jiu-jitsu, so they're like, dude, you're just being a kid. You need to knock it off and just focus on school. You, you should have been done already, things like that. Yeah. So I got one side that's just praising me all the time. They're like, oh, man, you're the best. You're going to be you're gonna be Well, the Assyrian special. nation erupted around you. No, no, this is before the Assyrian nation. Oh. This is just the jiu-jitsu community, my coaches, and the MMA community. So that's the group that's pushing me really hard. Yeah. They're like, you're going to be the best. You're this and that. The Assyrian community would come around when I would have a fight. This was before the UFC. But family was like... I see. This isn't going to be food. This isn't going to put food on the table. What yeah. are you doing, you know? This is not how you want to do things. So, yeah, that was kind of stuck in a weird space. And I, I was resentful towards the family because they weren't really... They weren't behind me. And then you got into MMA and that's or UFC and that's when they became behind you? The switch happened somewhere in, in the middle of there. I, it was 
before my fourth fight, my fourth fight was in Brazil before the UFC. The switch started to happen. It takes. It still took a while, but one day my mom calls me and tells me to come home. She needs to talk to me, and she starts just explaining to me that uh, Iran is having issues with America. They're blocking our trade, embargoes, and things like that, and it just made things difficult for us financially. And she was like, you know, we need you to step up and kind of help. And when she asked, I had never. I was I was a spoiled kid. I I really was. I I didn't really. I worked, but I worked for myself. I never worked for the house. I never gave a dime for the house, which was, which be, one because I was like, oh, we don't need it. We're fine. And two, I just was like, like I I mentioned earlier, I was very self centered. I had only one goal, which was winning, and I didn't want anyone else to have part of that. I didn't want to say, oh yeah, my mom gave me money, but she did. She would support me whenever I'd be like, hey mom, I need this. She'd be like, okay, here you go. I, I want, so I had my own job, I had this. I just want to do everything on my own. So, yeah, my mom calls me and she says, you know, we, uh, I don't know what to do. It's not often you hear your elders, your parents say, especially in our culture, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do is, is huge. That's what, that's what you hear from a kid. Oh, I don't know. You know, and, and when she said that, I, I was frightened and that's when I really started to like, I need to think what I'm gonna do, and and I, that's actually when I when I when I believe God really decided to, to to show Himself to to me, and and that's when I started to pray. I was like, I don't I don't have I don't have anywhere to go. I I kind of pushed off my friends. I pushed off my family. I I need direction. I need help. I I really need help. I more than direction. I needed help. Uh, I I was like, if you're up there, help, dude. I, 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 I need a lifeline and in a few weeks my coach called me for a fight in Brazil and I think to myself Brazil I, I, that's cool that's like a dream come true to go there and fight in jiu-jitsu but I, I gotta make money man I'm, I'm probably gonna end up getting that like nine to five job or something and he tells me no the, the, the fight will pay well and you know we'll move forward from there a month from now it pays well it help really with the bill yeah, I'll do it. I, I jump in. I go out in Brazil, and in like three minutes, I made more money than I've made my whole career in jiu-jitsu. Wow. Yeah, so I come back home, and I'm like, here you go, Mom. But obviously, bills, I don't have to tell anybody. Bills don't end. They just keep coming. Yeah. So God kept providing new doors to provide. He provided doors for teaching. And he, he provided a way for me to just be able to support the family. And that's when things changed. That's when my family started to say, okay, we see what you're doing and we respect this. Mm -hmm. They didn't respect me just chasing one thing, yeah. which was winning, but they respected the fact that I can use that one thing to support them. Yeah, makes sense, it's practical, um, and also gives validity to what you're doing. So when did that UFC stuff start? After the fourth fight, I thought to myself, I got some teaching positions. I'm, I'm helping out the family. I'm going to have to leave jiu-jitsu behind. There's no money in jiu-jitsu, which broke my heart because that's all I cared about at that time. I was, I was, I was, I was the next best, the best thing. I was, like I said, I won a lot of tournaments and uh, people were really paying attention to me. I had, I had just got my black belt. And when I got my black belt, people were like, oh, this, you know, watch out for this kid. But I pretty much couldn't do jiu-jitsu. I had to focus on MMA. And MMA and jiu-jitsu are 
really different. While we use uh, Jiu-Jitsu and MMA, there's a lot of things we don't. So I started just focusing on uh, MMA to fight, to provide, and uh, yeah, that that ended up leading me to the UFC. Two more fights, I ended up getting the call from the UFC. What's funny is though, during that time, the, the itch to compete in Jiu-Jitsu was still there, the, the call was still there. And I remember I spent most of my time doing MMA and then I got called to fight jujitsu. They said they would pay me if I won. And I showed up and I just, I hadn't been training jujitsu. I got my butt kicked and that was hard. Losing was very hard for me. It still is. It's not something I enjoy, but it just validified that I needed to stick with MMA and keep doing what I was doing. Right. You you were baited into it, opportunity to make more money, and also you knew you were always passionate about it. But, of course, you know, the other guy you're going against, that's his livelihood. He's yeah. just training all day long waiting for you, whereas yeah. you were, like, doing it, the it's MMA. Gonna be, it's not going to be 50-50. Anymore. No. I was doing 50%, more 70%. You had to 50. choose which yeah. direction you were going to go. you, you got to make big boy choices. Yeah. And... I, I feel like after that call, after God called me for, you know, to, to, to be a man, to support the, uh, the house, every choice I made after that was different. It was, it was break, make or break choices. You don't, it's kind of hard to think of it like that because it puts a lot of pressure on you. But when you become an adult, you make choices that decide whether your family is going to be successful or it's going to fail. And. Are you going to make those choices based on yourself, based on what's best for your family, based what's best for you? And that, that pressure, get, it can be tough. And I think you, you should have a good relationship with your father in heaven because he, he can make that choice well. Yeah. So one of the things all Assyrians would love to hear is what was it like to know and to, when you first re- realized, whoa, I'm an Assyrian and now I'm on this national platform or this worldwide platform what was it like? Like, were there Assyrians showing up to all your fights and, of course, your social media? And It's it's amazing how the Assyrian community works. Even before I was in the UFC, I was just, I had some fights and small shows. It was a tiny show. It was in Pomona. Pomona's in L.A. County. It's, it's, it's small. It's, I told people I was fighting there. And like I said, my first fight, I think I had like 60, 70 people. My fights after I went to Brazil and came back, I started like promoting myself more because I had to sell tickets. If I sold tickets, I made more money. And by just kind of promoting things, the Assyrian community just took kind of recognized what I was doing and they, they realized, oh man, this kid's not terrible. And all of a sudden, I went from having 60 people to 100, 120, and, and so on. And then there was the call from the UFC. It was, it was really crazy how the Assyrian community just got behind me. People were driving from San Jose to watch a fight, and sometimes the fight went lasted only a minute. They would drive that far just for that, and then afterwards they'd be so happy. I'm like, you guys drove five hours, six hours for a minute, and they didn't care. I, I remember uh, the the TV crew, AMB came in. Yeah, they came in, and they just videoed me at home, and, and right before the fight, the day of the fight, and they just, you know, they were with me, and, and, and the fight was... 30 seconds the guy did something I onboard him in 30 seconds and it was over but they were so happy and they played the fight 
a million times on, on the channel and they had me come in and things like that. And this is before the UFC. So that, imagine that LA up north, California community. Now imagine that on a global level. I'm, I'm getting messages from Australia, Sweden, Chicago's going What crazy. was that like? It, at first, it was tough to deal with because I was... I was, uh... You're not, like, a flamboyant guy who's like, yes, I love all this attention, but you're also not antisocial, so you're... Attention is fun. It's fun, but my issue with with it was, at that time, was I need seclusion to be the best. That that was kind of my mindset. Yeah. I want to be the best, and and this isn't going to help me. I need to to stay sharp. I need to stay hungry and and things like that. I, I think God was working in me then because he was really making sure I, I don't stay in seclusion. He made sure I, I, I step out and I, I interact with the community. I think that was something, uh, I think that was something from God because if, if it was up to me at that time, I would have just just been like, yeah, thanks guys. And then just gone back to what I do. I, I, I wouldn't have gone to Chicago or, or traveled or things like that to, it it was it was a lot, man. The pressure of it was tough. People want to take pictures with you, and, and these are the same people that would have told me, "Hey, you should go back to school." Yeah. A couple of years ago, and, and until the fight came in, and once that happened, my my family, my mom especially, she was okay. <laughs> She's in. <laughs> once she saw the community, uh, that really because because if you think about it, from my mom's side, it makes sense. She has to look at kids, uh, other people's kids. They're getting jobs as professors or, or lawyers or you name it you know business right. jobs established established yeah. jobs and when it comes she's got to talk about me she's like oh can we change the subject he's a fighter yeah he's i she's like i don't know i think he wants to be a fighter or something that you know but that then that all switched when yeah and then all of a sudden that switched and they're like instead of the uh, the community instead of talking about their kids they're like What's your son doing? <laughs> so that that was that was huge. That really helped because I that would have been a really big issue. My mother and I every day she'd come to me and be like, "So when are you gonna stop fighting?" You know. But once that changed, that that also again helped me get back to where I needed to be and, and just work hard. So I thought being in seclusion was gonna help me just stay focused, but actually interacting gave me more motivation and. And knowing that it brings them pride was like, okay, cool. I, I want to do this. Brought better. you a lot of pride. Yeah. With that being said, the I think for Assyrian people, when we see the Assyrian flag on TV, you know, we get all excited and, oh my gosh, there it is. I didn't understand that at first. I didn't realize it was that big of a deal. I, I'm living in Orange County. I'm not saying I was unaware of it, but I didn't think it was like that big of a deal. I'm like, it's a flag. You just put it online. People see it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, after my first fight in the UFC, I had the flag on me, and things went nuts. Yeah. It just it blew up in a way I wasn't expecting, and I didn't know what to do. I I, I was like, dude, this flag has got some juice in it. I <laughs> I gotta make sure I, I I keep it with me. But the flag brought a lot of privilege. And I, uh, like I told you, I, li- I listened to Dr. McGee. He says, with privilege comes responsibility. And I was like, oh, man, this guy, he's just ripping. Rip- Who's Dr. McGee for people who don't know? Uh, Dr. Vernon McGee, he's, uh, he is a pastor from Texas. And 
he's just awesome. He's got this really strong accent, and he has this podcast. It's through the Bible bus. Now, friends, we're back here today at verse 11. That's where we're going to put in, and we've come to a new section. But before I get into that, let me say that in that last section, Paul was stating the subject, and he did it in a very warm way, by the way. Is he still alive? I don't think so. He passed. I, 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 he passed away a few years back. But I like to listen to him. I, I, he's one of those uh, no-nonsense kind of guys. He just gets straight to the point. But yeah. there's one where he talks about privilege. He says, with privilege comes responsibility. And I was like, ah, this guy, he's copying Uncle Ben from uh, Spider-Man. You know, um, I'm not a Spider-Man. You're but, not? Oh, no. my gosh. But, like, <laughs> but I don't know if you've watched, but... Um, Spider-Man, his uncle, he passes away right before he passes away. He says to, to Peter Parker, he says, with, with power, with great power, comes great responsibility. Okay, I do you, remember you, that you line. That yeah, yeah, yeah. That. That's, that's uh, famous. But that's actually not true. With great power comes corruption. With power, it, if you have power, it means it's your own. You did it on yourself. With privilege, it means somebody bestowed that upon you. It was given to you. That's a responsibility. You're responsible for somebody, what somebody else gives you. If you took it yourself, if it's yours, then you don't have a responsibility to anybody. So with that privilege of uh, having that flag and, and, and just getting all of that, all of that love, I, I knew I had a responsibility. Just It was more than just be like, hey, yeah, I'm going to take advantage of this. I'm going to go party and I'm going to hang out with people and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enjoy myself. I realized there's a privilege in that and there's a re- responsibility in that and, and having that flag around my shoulders and it's, it's heavy. So. And- and, Be strong. Yeah, and what you've done with your success is you've served a bunch of different ministries, um, different Assyrian nonprofit organizations. Tell us about that work. Yeah, there's been some Assyrian uh, ministries I've served in, in some just not Assyrian, just some Brazilian, American, yeah, Filipino. Because you're I, going to Haiti and doing trips there. Yeah, so. I, it's it's crazy since I since I started fighting in the UFC I have been to Haiti for mission work I've been to the Philippines for mission work. Like what do you do when you're there? For Haiti it was uh, it's a medical thing our our church does it and I just want to go. I, yeah. Uh, my my pastor's like look you got to go it's a game changer I don't I don't know what that means but okay it sounds cool it's not too expensive I'll I'll go to Haiti I'll I'll eat pasta and beans and I'm like I'll show them how tough I am. I went to Haiti and. I wasn't that tough because you see the life they live and and you realize a lot of stuff we we were about here it's trivial it's really nothing what car am I going to drive what 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 am I which restaurant am I going to pick to eat at and and things like that you realize how little it means how little affects your life in in the big picture and Haiti was really good for me so it was a medical trip in Haiti where I was just supporting the medical team. And they're like, oh, you need this? I got it. You need this? I got it. And then the, there was feeding programs. We we would just buy food while we were there and try to feed them and, and, and then share the gospel. And the Philippines, yeah, so I was kind of a side character in, in, in Haiti. And I went twice. The Philippines was different. It was a martial arts thing or, where we teach seminars and, and we teach the youth. But at the same time, we would share the gospel. I would share my testimony and... Uh, if they needed me to speak on anything else, I would, but I think I did my testimony a few times, and I guess they liked it. So 
Philippine side character, and then when I go to the, I, I'm sorry, the Haiti was like a side thing. I was I was just helping out, but in the Philippines, I I, I really had to be on point because I'm 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 in the front, I, which was something I thank God I, I was more prepared for it, thanks to fighting and just the Syrian community asking me always to be this and that helped out. And I know you've also helped out with the Syrian aid organization. Yeah. So with, with what happened with uh, ISIS and uh, Iraq and uh, Syria, I, I I made sure to just jump in right away. Yeah. And again, that that allowed me to get closer to the to my people. Yeah. <laughs> it was cool. I I spent a lot of time just finding ways to raise money to for a Syrian aid society. There's a Syrian Church of the East, the Syro. I whatever I could do, I just jumped on it and did it. If they they're like, oh, just come out and just sit here. I'd be like, cool, come out. Oh, yeah. sell a shirt. Because people really would love to meet you and connect. Yeah, I mean, little things, stuff like that helps. Sure, it's not a big deal. And then you used, obviously, some of your education and your savviness because you ended up launching your own business, right? You, how many different mixed martial arts facilities do you have? I have one. Okay. I, I train at, at multiple, but I have one that's my King's own. MMA, King's right? King's MMA, which is, which is a uh, copy of my, my coach's. So uh, I just took the name with his permission, obviously. What happened was I got injured one day. I was supposed to fight in January. I got injured, I think, at uh, end of uh, November. Something was going on with my spleen. I got hit, so they thought it was going to burst. I went to the hospital. And they're like, you're not fighting. You, you, we, we're gonna keep you overnight just to make sure you're not bleeding out. But you need to just stay off till your spleen heals. And I've never skipped out on a fight. That was the first time, and and I still haven't skipped out on a fight. So we were like, okay, we're not gonna fight. My coach is my manager. We're not gonna fight. And I'm just sitting at home, and I'm I'm talking with God. I'm like, God, why, why? You know, you you put me here, and I'm everything's going well. I'm I think I had like three, four fights in a row where I won. What's 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 the point of this? You know, what's going on? At that time, I was extremely successful, and everything was going really well. But to my friends, I love these guys. They're my own. If uh, someone asked they were, they were flesh and blood, I would, I would pretty much say, yeah, these guys are my brothers. And they were, they were not doing so good. They were both incredible athletes and great coaches. And they, they wanted to do that. They just couldn't find the right place. And I told David, you know, why don't you just pray on it? Why don't you go ahead and pray on it? I, I, I had thought about opening up a gym before. I even had a, someone who was willing to invest, and I tried. I, I worked, I prayed on it, and tried to see if it would work out. It just never did, never never uh, came to fruition. So I'm hurt, I'm injured, I'm home, I can't train, which was driving me crazy. I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm not a simple guy, man. I, I train all day, I, I eat, and I sleep. I... I had some like paperwork. I had to go to the bank. I had to do this. I said, okay, I'll just get that done. Like it'll keep me busy because I'm just on my. I think I'm on my phone on going scrolling through Facebook or Instagram, which is the last thing you want to do. It just gets old and it just mushes your brain. So I get up. I go to the to the bank and I I, I do whatever I was supposed to do. I just, I don't even remember what I was supposed to do. I do what I was supposed to do and I walk out. As I'm about to walk out. Someone calls me and he's like, hey, Benny. I was like, I looked over and he's an instructor from another gym. His name is Brandon Lee Malone. And
and he says to me, what's going on? She starts talking to me, and she asks me what's going on with my fight, and I tell him, oh, I was, it fell apart, and I tell him, I ask him about his gym, he's like, gym's good, everything's great, and then for some reason I end up mentioning, you know, we tried looking for a gym and it didn't work out, and at that point he makes like a weird face, and he's like, like a surprised face, and he, he looks at me and he's like, you know, I'm thinking about giving away my like selling my gym basically i'm thinking about selling my gym and uh i was like no you're kidding it's five minutes from my house its location is great it's uh it was a little bit small at that time i i, I thought i needed a bigger gym but it was perfect and crazy thing is in less than a month or like 45 days i was a gym owner just it just happened overnight. Wow, that was fast. Things. Yeah, like he was so ready to just I can't I can't do this anymore. And all the terms felt right for you and it was like here dude, just take it. Basically. And what's it been like to be running that place? It's been really hard actually. Uh, you know, uh, like I said those guys my uh, our family, but to be a gym owner, you have to again make big boy decisions just like you have to make big boy decisions with your family where you make decisions that are make or break. It's, it's pass or fail. There's no this or that. There's a, Someone's going to be mad at you with each decision. Yeah. And that's been really tough. And we're still working that out and we're still getting better at it. But I'm so grateful for that gym. That gym's been a huge blessing. I mean, it, it's it's been great for them. It's been great for me. I, I'm really interested to see where that thing goes. And where did you meet Victoria? I know you've been with Victoria now for a few years. Victoria and I, we've been together for three years. She she was training in, in King's MMA with uh, my striking coach, uh, my MMA coach, uh, Rafael Cordero. But we never met because our times were different. We started about the same time. She may have been earlier. I may have been earlier. I used to train at this gym called the Affliction Warehouse. It was in the Affliction Warehouse. They brought in Rafael Cordero just to teach there. They had a big facility. So I would go there in the mornings, the professional guys would go there. I would, I would go there, I would, I would train, and I would, I would do my thing, and that's, that's pretty much it. And then he eventually stopped teaching there, so I had to start going to his gym, and I started spending a lot of time at his gym. I eventually became a coach there. I don't know if I, if I mentioned it earlier, but God opened up opportunities for me to teach Jiu-Jitsu, and that was one of the places I started teaching. So you're in a serious relationship, you've launched your own business, you're teaching jiu-jitsu, you're obviously you're running the company, and then you know, you're still a fighter in the UFC. Where are you at with that? Right now, I'm trying to heal, and my only thought is, when is my next fight? I just want to be healthy, and I just want to fight. But motivation-wise, extremely motivated, and where do I see myself in the UFC? I see... Most of the world probably written me off. I see myself as a contender and soon to be champion. Good. Yeah. Well, you know when that day comes, who will be behind you? We'll all be behind you. Yeah, that's, that's, you guys are sometimes in front of me. You guys are like, I'll get that guy for you. Don't worry. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. But one thing that bothers me, I do want to say, in regards to your last fight, it's that funny. fighter, we no one knew who that guy was. You had no tape on him. Right, but I chose to take that fight. I, I had a, there was a mission trip going to the Philippines. I didn't want my fight to be pushed back. I didn't want to do it later because then I would, I would miss that trip. So I decided to take that fight. Again, there's no excuses for that loss. 
I could have said no. I, I could have said I want someone in the top 15, top 10. I make big boy choices. Do you ever I, get a rematch with that guy? God willing, I will, yeah. Okay. Yeah, of course. Cool. Big boy choices, man. <laughs> That's how life is. You, you, I think sometimes we, we think we have to, our, our choices are like, well, this is going to be this, this is going to be that. So one of the things I love to ask people who are on the Assyrian podcast is if you could say something to all your fans, to all the Assyrians all over the world, because people from Sweden, Australia, Canada, um, we have 40% of our listeners are outside the U.S. If you could say anything to all these people, what would you say? Obviously, first thing is first, I want to say thanks, guys. You guys, you know, the support is unreal. I, I don't know how everybody else gets support, but I can say mine is the best because <laughs> it, from my eyes, I, this is the best support and, and I, I couldn't say, I don't have enough words to, to truly say thank you. But I, what, I, what I would say to my fans and, and the people who look up to me and, and, and they think I have the answers, I, I, I would really tell them, you need to learn what's good and what's not good, what's bad. You need to learn right and wrong. You need to learn morality and you need to start making your decisions based on that if you want to be successful. I think that's huge. Thank you so much. And I also want to say thank you for supporting us. Thank you for supporting the Assyrian nation and representing us the way that you do. Like I said earlier, I think that's a privilege. It's, it's a privilege to have the Assyrian community just be behind me like the way it is. So with the privilege comes responsibility. I feel great about it. I, I'm so happy about it. So I'm, I'm excited to have that responsibility. Well, we'll be there cheering you on for your next fight. Heck, maybe I'll get a media pass as a Syrian podcast, you know, host. And, uh, <laughs> and, and. I have some connections. Yeah, yeah. I, I make friends. I, I'm, that's one good, that's one thing I'm kind of good at. I, I make friends, even in the UFC uh, employees and, and things like that. Well, who wouldn't want to be friends with you, man? I don't know. I, yeah. If I find somebody, I'll, I'll send okay. them away. So thanks so much for being on the podcast, and we'll catch up with you either before or after your next fight and hear what the latest is. Sounds good.